You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with 1-0. With me, he's back. Back in the New York groove. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. I, I am back in the New York groove. How are you doing, man? I am okay. I am gearing up for another road trip. And, and like the last one was, uh, I don't know, like six months ago. Yep. This time I'm driving out to Chicago, and I am so unprepared. Oh, how come? I don't know. I'm I'm usually way more prepared than this. I'm like leaving, I don't know, like five days. Yeah. And uh, no, usually I'm packed and waiting on the porch around this time. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think it's because it's been so long since I have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That I'm usually I'm, you know, three, two, three, four road trips a year. Now, you know, I don't know if you get the newspaper. We had a global pandemic a couple of years ago. Oh, is that what happened? Um, yeah. 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 It was a hoax, uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> uh, it was a five G satellites. Any, anyway, um, gay frogs. Yeah, <laughs> the gay frogs with their cell phones. Oh. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just say I, I haven't gotten back into the into the New York groove, as it were. I guess I have not had that problem because I don't do road trips at this at the moment. But I'm glad you bring that up because it actually dovetails nicely with a conversation I had with one of my neighbors as I was walking my dog. Our dogs are friends, and therefore, we are friends. So we got passed by Tesla. You can't hear those things coming. They don't make noise. You just hear the tires, right? And uh, we're talking about cars, and and he's like, geez, you know, he has a big camper. And I asked him, oh, he's telling me about a trip that he's planning to go on in his camper. And I was like, oh, you know, you're going to convert that thing to electric or something? Or you're going to be able to feed it? And we started talking about battery technology and how now you're starting to see more charging stations around for electric vehicles because there are more electric vehicles on the road. Right. We actually have electric charging stations at the local mall over at the Dartmouth Mall. And seriously, this is like the area that gets last. You know what I mean? If we have it, then it must be everywhere. It must be. Well, I think the point that he was ma- like making was like, he says, oh, you've seen the pictures of like the Tesla on the side of the road being charged by, you know, a diesel generator in the back of a pickup truck. And I was like, yeah, those pictures always kind of irritate me. He goes, yeah, me too. And I started to think about like when we transitioned from horses and carts to gasoline-powered vehicles, like right around 1910 or so, yeah. And how there was the New York to Paris road race, and I know we talked about that on the show. Like, how do you get gas? Like, you have to go find somebody who has a tank full of the stuff that they use for something else. That's how you keep your car full of gas. You have to go ask for it because yeah. there's no infrastructure. Yeah, they bring it out to you by horse. Right, they bring it out to you by and, horse. And then everyone's laughing at you. Right. Yeah, because, like, oh, yeah. what do you want one of these things for? There's plenty of grass around to feed my horse. You'll never see me stuck by the side of the road looking for somebody. 
And all I can think of is like, those, I'm sure those guys are the the ones who are like looking at the Model Ts finally, like that's gonna run out of gas long before my horse gets tired. Ha 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 ha. And then slowly yeah. but surely, the infrastructure to support the cars came along and made the horses obsolete. So he says, "Oh yeah, they're starting to put EV stations into regular gas stations now." And I said, "That makes perfect sense." Because you can charge really fast. You can charge like super fast between 10% and 80%, like 15 minutes. And he goes, I know. And I thought to myself, like, I'll finally get to realize that Maria Menounos is telling me something at the gas pump instead of just the two minutes that I'm sticking 10 gallons into my Mazda trying to get her to stop talking to me. Because I'm going to be stuck there for 15 minutes trying to get to 80%. Right. You can literally do that while you go grocery shopping. Right. Yeah. There are places that you can plug in and charge now, like to build that infrastructure to be there. What will make it expand really is like the use of it in commercial stuff for deliveries and police officers and like that sort of application where it's used all the time and there's a, a, a rational interest for it based on the business need. And that's what will drive the consumer thing like. Sort of like how VHS was driven by the embrace of the porn industry. And that's what made VHS, VHS so popular. Right. As soon as the porn industry starts embracing electric cars, we are off and running. Anyway, I started thinking about that and like how you can have infinite diversity in infinite combinations, right? With electric cars, because they can all have the same powertrain. It's an electric motor and some batteries that make it go. There's no transmission. There's no other stuff. So I don't, I don't imagine it's too far down the road where instead of getting something that looks like a Tesla... You could go to Tesla and say, yeah, I want the new model, but I want it to look like a 1972 AMC Gremlin. And they say, okay, come back in six weeks and you go pick up a 1972 AMC Gremlin, but it's powered the same way the Tesla is. Or you say, I want a 1978 Thunderbird. And there you go. You go pick that up. It's all made of modern materials and has all like modern safety stuff in it. But the outside shell and the inside is reminiscent of that particular car. It'd be kind of like, the, you know, the way we have different cell phone covers now, right. you know? You'll be able to order like knockoffs on Amazon or from somebody's like Etsy store. Just just <laughs> like, no, just like that. And, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting. It was this really f- interesting, fun epiphany as I was getting back to my house with, with uh, Oreo that all of this, we're right on the cusp of watching all of this stuff start to happen. It's really, really exciting time to be car and transport type nerd and a techno nerd at the same time. It's really fun. Uh, I am a math nerd, as we've established. Which leads nicely into my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Today, we got a twofer, so to speak. They're very similar questions, so I just decided to ram them together. Ah, lovely. Uh, uh, The numbers on... This one's going to be easy because you could probably do the math in your head. But the numbers on a pair of six-sided dice and the numbers on a roulette wheel, both of them add up to significant numbers or numbers of some significance okay so you have numbers on a pair of six-sided dice add up to this one significant number and then all the numbers on a roulette wheel add up to another significant number what are those numbers oh man all the numbers on a roulette Chism wheel bop. here we go yes <laughs> yeah uh uh oh man i'm gonna need the rest of the show to try and figure that out all right so this is the week beginning July the 18th, and I believe, do believe it is your turn to start. It is. All right. July 18th. Hey, July 18th, 718. That's Bill upside down. <laughs> it is indeed. It's a Bill day. It's Bill it day. Is one, it is and it's your turn day. to start. <laughs> just, like, just like we have Bill time twice a day, we also have Bill day once it's a Bill year. Bill o'clock. It is Bill O'Clock. So, July 18th, 1938, Douglas, quote-unquote, Wrongway Corrigan, arrives in Ireland after a 28-hour flight that supposedly left New York City for California. So, you may be asking yourself, 
how does a dude in 1938 fly all the way to Ireland instead of California in one fell swoop? Well, let me tell you this story. Yeah, go ahead. Douglas Wrongway, Corrigan. Sounds French. (laughs) Did not fly to, to Ireland by mistake, although he claims he did, sort of. He had originally put in for a permit to fly from New York to Ireland, and it was declined. He has a home-built airplane, much like Charles Lindbergh does, and Lindbergh was apparently his hero. His plane had two extra big fuel tanks built right on the nose, so you can't see out the front window. Traditionally, that's not where they go. Well, you need extra fuel to fly for 28 straight hours, right? And traditionally, you're going to want to see where you're going. Call me irrational. But I guess you don't have to. You can stick your head out the window sideways, and you're taking off and landing. That's how Lindbergh did it, because Lindbergh couldn't see out of his plane either. Like a golden retriever. (laughs) How close am I? How close am I? I can't see the other side. And the only way he could kind of tell where he was was to look down out through the door. And when he looked down out through the door, all he could see were clouds. So he didn't know that he was over the Atlantic Ocean until 10 or 12 hours into the flight. So he says. He also had a compass on board, but it was described as a 20-year-old compass that may have been malfunctioning. And yet, when he realized he was way over the Atlantic Ocean, it was he was too far to turn back, and he figured he might as well just keep on going until he arrived at wherever he was going to land. Was he also known as Douglas Full of Shit Corrigan? <laughs> no, but that would have been a better nickname for him. <laughs> he basically said, look, it's not like they're going to scramble to the U.S. Army Air Corps to find me and bring me back. So he filed his flight plan to go from New York to California. Took off and flew due east anyway until he arrived in Dublin, where I'm sure they were like, oh, Begora, what was that thing then? <laughs> As the plane came down and landed without authorization at whatever airport they had in 19. 19- I could just hear Fozzie and Kermit the Frog from the Muppet movie saying, gee, I've never seen the sun come up in the west. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to July the 19th. July the 19th, 1961. Your, oh, speaking of airplanes, your friends and mine over at TWA offer the first in-flight movie. Oh, I I wonder what it was. Uh, That movie was a movie called By Love Possessed, which sounds like a sizzler. (laughs) Oh, boy. I wonder if the movie was was so bad. Like, what do you do? You're trapped on that plane. There's no escape. Yeah. You have to watch that thing all the way to the end. Did you you ever fly on a plane that that did before they had the TV seatback screens? No, 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 no. No, I I, I've never been. No, you did. I never had it like with like the pull down screen and you have like the earphones. Yep. The first couple of times I went back and and forth overseas to England. Oh, Uh, right. Okay. I saw a house guest with Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin. Oh, geez. And I, yeah, it was not the greatest of films. And some other, like, I don't know, maybe it was like a Merchant and Ivory film something the other time and it was bo- it, both times it was like it, it just made the flight longer and more irritating yeah, um, that, that sounds like they just want you to go to sleep right now there's like tons of choice the last time i flew when i went to las vegas i watched the horrible most recent remake of the magnificent seven. Oh yeah yeah uh, speaking of our good friend wrong way there uh whenever i went to las vegas the last time when we were flying home this woman that was sitting next to me they had given her the wrong flight. She goes, yeah, this morning I woke up. I was in Egypt. Then they put me on an airplane. I was supposed to be in New York City. And as we're landing in New York City, I said, wow, 
New York City looks a hell of a lot like Las Vegas does. <laughs> yeah, they booked her on the wrong flight. Yeah, she goes, yeah, I haven't, I, I haven't been in like really asleep in like 48 hours. She was sitting next to me. I fell asleep, but she was watching The Avengers, the first one, on the, on the back of her right. seat. Yeah. Entertainment options have become much better than trying not to die of smoke inhalation and or listening to children scream and cry, which are two things that I've done on airplanes. Yeah, now now you have the option of watching people that watch way too many uh, conspiracy theory YouTube channels freak out or watching a, a guy getting his clock cleaned by Mike Tyson. Options are limitless. I think of that as like theater, yeah. you know, especially the Mike Tyson one. It's like, oh, it's the Mike Tyson show. It's like, they're doing it live right here. <laughs> Usually to get this close to ringside, you got to pay <laughs> through the wazoo for tickets like this. All right. What do we got for July the 20th? July the 20th, 1989, a photographer named Robert Mablethorpe. Oh, is, uh, Jesus is... Christ. <laughs> Robert Mablethorpe's show opens at the Washington, D.C.'s Project for the Arts after it's booted by the Smithsonian Institution's Corcoran Gallery because of the tremendous burst of fury that his portfolio has generated in the, uh, let's the what's a good way to describe it that is neither negative nor political, the less sexually liberated of Washington, D.C., realize what his photos are of. <laughs> so, Maplethorpe does beautiful black and white photography, and his focus for this show, at least, was on homosexual men. And mm. it was explicit. Yeah, I was um, I was in this bookstore in Providence, and they had a book of his photography, and it was all, like, celebrity portraits, all black and white. Very beautiful stuff. There was, like, one with beautiful contrast of uh, Whoopi Goldberg in a bathtub full of milk. You ever see that picture? That's a very famous Maplethorpe yeah. picture, yeah. And then I get to the back of the book, and there's like the about the author, and yep. there's there's Robert, buck freaking naked, with a bullwhip in one of the orifices. Uh, you, you see where I'm going, where the bullwhip is inserted. Uh, uh, he was holding it in place with one hand, and with the other hand, he's got like the clicker for the automatic shutter on his camera. And yeah. that's that's his about the author picture. Yes. So, yeah. Look, man, you want to make an impact, especially if people are, people are going to be just jumping right past that picture to get to the Whoopi Goldberg and milk. So you yeah. got to keep them on that back flap. That's how <laughs> you do it. I think his compositions are beautiful. Admittedly, I find that the idea of such stark black and white pictures as erotic is funny because I don't think they are. I think they're ridiculous. My favorite part of this is, is, you know, the potential that you could do like a really funny pop-up book. (laughs) The Robert Don't open the middle page. Don't open the middle page. (laughs) The the Robert Maplethorpe pop-up book. It's the name of my next punk rock band. So speaking of bands and speaking of, uh, bands, (laughs) July the 21st, 1990, Roger Waters and a huge list of guest stars perform Pink Floyd's The Wall at Checkpoint Charlie, where the Berlin Wall once stood. I watched that on DVD. Yep, I listened to it live. It was a live simulcast on on 94HJY, and we learned a very important lesson about the importance of dress rehearsals with that concert. Because right around the time Sinead O'Connor was performing, she did, she performed Mother, there, a fire broke out on the stage and the concert had to be halted for about, I think it was about a half an hour, 20 minutes to a half an hour until the fire could get put out. And then they restarted the concert. So whenever you watch the DVD or the Blu-ray or whatever, 
maybe the YouTube. Whenever you watch it, whenever you get up to Sinead O'Connor performing, you're watching parts from the dress rehearsal. Oh, and I remember listening to, I had to work the, the day that that show was. So I only heard the first, I don't know, maybe half an hour of it when it was mm-hmm. live, when the yep. stereo simulcast. And then I had to go to work. So I never, I never got to hear it in its whole format until uh, I think you brought the DVD to my house. No, oh, yeah, probably. That album, that concert, that everything, everything about that is, you know, just such an important part of my life. The fact that that concert actually happened, uh, Roger Waters, you know, in the 80s, had such a huge falling out with his bandmates in Pink Floyd. You know, people asked him if he would ever perform The Wall again. And he had said, well, if I did, something monumental would have to happen, like the Berlin Wall would have to come down or something. And within like two years of him saying that, the Berlin Wall came down. They're like, hey, big mouth. So (laughs) (laughs) it's the concert had a lot of guest performers. Yeah. Albert Finney. Thomas Dolby, right? Yeah, I mean, think about the, uh, yeah, I mean, the Berlin Wall coming down is just a huge, huge, huge part of uh, of world history. The Scorpions opened the show, Scorpions being from Germany. They performed in the flesh. And then uh, you said you mentioned Thomas Dolby. Thomas Dolby was the teacher, teacher. In, during the trial, and he insisted on being suspended from a crane. He said he, he didn't want to perform unless he could be suspended from a crane, and they're like, all right, get him a crane, whatever. I like that that uh that mirrors the way he he's like a puppet character in the cartoon in the film. Yes, yes, yeah, that's fair. That's yep. And then Brian Adams of all people, he performs Young Lust. That's probably the only thing that Brian Adams has ever done that I liked. That is absolutely the biggest crowd Brian Adams has ever performed in oh, front of. That's yeah, a guarantee. That's a guarantee. And Cindy Lauper performed another Brick in the Wall part two, and she's just something. She's just wonderful. And and instead of Outside the Wall, which is the traditional last song for the, the, the wall performance, they performed a Roger Waters solo song called The Tide is Turning from the Radio Chaos album, which was pretty wonderful. Yeah, that's the best song on Yep. Best song, yes. My favorite song, no, but best song, yes. Okay. Okay. Noted. Yeah. Uh, all right. July 22nd, 1918. <laughs> At Utah's Wasatch National Park, a lightning strike that is so large. How large is it? It's so large, it wipes out 504 full-grown sheep in one strike. Wow. That's a ton. That's a lot of sheep that shuffle off their mortal coil right there, or mortal wool, in one strike. Like, it must have been like like in the, the my video game for Spider-Man, uh, Miles Morales, where you get, like, shock power. You hit one guy, but it shocks all the other guys around you. Right, yeah. It must have, yeah, exactly. it must have just hit one sheep, and it's just like, bzz, 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 to all the other ones. I wonder if it was that, or, like, there was one sheep in there that was, like, Mortal Kombat for a sheep, and it was he was raiding. And he just took them all out, you know. He took the strike down and then wiped out all the other sheep, but and he won. Finish him. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that? Can you imagine coming to pause that? What the hell is going on here? Are they all sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> what is that it smell? Smells like, yeah. it's, it smells really good. It smells What's like barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only it would rain some potatoes and mint jelly, we'd be all set for a month. What? <laughs> <laughs> What's the closest you've ever been to a lightning strike? Uh, I was in, I've been in buildings that have been struck. Oh, really? Which is terrifying, yeah. When I was in England, they used to strike the campus that I was on, because oh. we were the biggest building for like six miles, so 
We were like a giant lightning rod. When we had giant lightning rods on the building. I was in yeah, Florida. It was, it was tough. I was in Florida where lightning is different. Lightning is very, very strong in Florida. There was a big thunderstorm, and my two god kids, who were, I mean, they were very small at the time, and they're kind of like yelling and screaming. They're like, ah, they're all afraid, right? I was like, okay, look, the lightning's outside. It can't strike you inside. If you're really afraid, go into the living room, which is in the center of the house. The lightning can't get you there. So I'm in the front of the house and I'm looking out the window and I'm looking at these like cranes, just like the birds, not like Thomas Dolby. Uh, these cranes like walking by. All of a sudden, this lightning strike hits the tree across the street and just destroys it like it breaks it right in half <laughs> rips the bark right yep. off of it and then as long as i live i will never forget this feeling the shock wave from the lightning blast went through me i felt it just like like right through me like the, the yep. like when the death star explodes right i am now in the middle of the house with the kids <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm staying with you guys. Yeah, yeah. The one that I remember from England that was the the strongest one I think ever. Yeah. Uh, it hit the building and I I woke up in midair, <laughs> like I was sound asleep and I woke up above my mattress like I was hovering in like a half horizontal half karate pose, <laughs> and then kerblam! Right. It's like so it was the strike that that jolted me out of bed. No pun intended. Yeah. That the crash that almost made me make my the space around my bed very moist with, uh, <laughs> that was one it was also the loudest thing that i ever remember it must have struck right like right within like 10 or 12 feet of the room that i was sleeping and it was super duper loud it was awful it shook everybody out of bed but i i remember waking up like what the hell and then boof i went i was already on my way falling back down to earth <laughs> all right july the 23rd 1904 now according to some accounts this is when the ice cream cone is invented by charles e Minches, looks like his last name is Minches, of St. Louis, Missouri, which you would think it would have been invented way earlier. But anyway, he comes up with the idea of filling a pastry cone with two scoops of ice cream. I guess this is a, like at a fair, like a state fair or something. Oh, yeah. Other people have claimed to have invented the ice cream cone because like at that point, they're like, yeah, any idiot could have done that. <laughs> Isn't that weird? The light bulb was invented prior to the ice cream cone. Come on. It's definitely strange. I think it was probably at a World's Fair, but up to that point, like ice cream used to be sold in the Victorian era on little glass. But it looks like an, you know, like a Sunday cup. Yeah. You know what that looks like? Except it was almost all solid glass and they would put like the equivalent of a tablespoon of ice cream on it and sell. It was called a penny lick. Yeah. So you pay a penny and get a lick of ice cream and then they just take the glass thing and they put more ice cream on it and give it to somebody else and wash it. They just gave it to somebody else. Um, and I'm sure at some point someone thought, you know, we're killing all these people with ice cream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's because they're all getting typhoid. Maybe yeah. if we didn't, like, let them share this thing. You know that, you know how we could make a couple of bucks and get rid of tuberculosis? When I go for ice cream, that's what I get. So so I guess this, this seeds the most important of all questions with regard to the history of the ice cream cone bill, mm -hmm. which is sugar cone or plain cone? You know, it has been so long since I've had a plain cone. That I'm gonna say plain cone. Uh, my mom used to get those, you know, so we could have ice cream when we were kids. It was always plain cone. And at that time, I wanted sugar cone because it was the one I didn't get. And also, I'm a kid. Sugar? Are you kidding me? But now, like, it's been so long. Since, and I used to eat them sometimes, like, with no ice cream. Hey, can I have an ice cream cone? We don't have any ice cream. I didn't ask that question, did I? No, I said, can I have an ice cream cone? <laughs>
I am definitely a sugar cone dude as well. Mm-hmm. However, depend if it's soft serve, then I always get a plain cone because it actually can hold soft serve ice cream and a sugar cone can't. And I'm terrified of those giant, I don't know what they call them, but they look too big. They're the too waffle big cones? Though. Those are the things. Yeah, those things are monsters. Yeah. Like, I've, I'm afraid that if I ate that much ice cream in one sitting, I would die. And I'm not lactose intolerant or anything. But now I am. Um, but I would be, I think, if after I ate that. Or I would go into diabetic shock. All right. Let's wrap up the week. July 24th, ni- uh, July 24th, 1851. England's window tax is repealed. So you may be asking yourself, self, what I'm is not, a window tax? I'm not asking myself. I'm asking you. What the hell is a window oh, tax? okay. So... The window tax was levied in lieu of an income tax. So if you had so many windows, people could see inside and how much stuff you had, right? And yeah. so people would brick up windows to keep people from looking in. So you ended up getting taxed on the number of windows you had because it assumed that you had a lot of money or a lot of possessions that could be taxed. Right. Or I would guess, you know, the more windows you have, the bigger your property is too. That is definitely part of it. The tax itself was opposed on the ground that it was ultimately it's a tax on light and air. What windows let in is the, both of those things, right? right. Yep. It was repealed in 1851, but it had been around since 1696. So it's a long run for that particular tax. You said people were bricking up the windows? Yeah. They're all dying of rickets because they don't get any vitamin D. <laughs> right, exactly. They're like those salamanders you find in the caves that have never seen sunlight. So they're just gills and blind eyes. The translucent things, yeah. <laughs> translucent skin. Yeah, you can see all the veins in their arms. We have a similar, like we have a tax in New Hampshire. I don't know if you have it in, in Mass, but in New Hampshire, we have a thing called the view tax. I don't know if we have that. We are famously known as tax Massachusetts. We have a bazillion different taxes, but I don't think we have a view tax. Fill me in. So, the view tags here works is if you have property and you have a nice view from your property, mm-hmm. so you can see like mountains or you can see like a look down like a hill onto a lake, uh-huh. your property taxes will be higher because of the view tax. And it's actually called out in your tax bill as the view tax. Really? So it actually, it influences how people buy and sell property and, and how they build and where they build to try and minimize it. Part of the reason that it exists is it's to limit development in places where there's a pretty view we're a tourist driven state right and we want people to come here and park and go look it's a rock oh my gosh that rock is so pretty oh look the leaves are turning color because they don't do that at home right they don't i've never seen leaves that aren't green before and we don't want them to go like oh there used to be a rock here but now there's a big suburb right that's not pretty they don't want a suburb peep they want a leaf peep so it's to help prevent the development in a way that is Less obnoxious than just saying, no, you can't have a permit. They say you can have a permit here, but the view tax is like an additional X number of thousands of dollars a year. So people go, ah, screw that. I won't live there. I'll go live and I'll look, make my house look the other way. (laughs) It was put forth by the brick wall alley lobbyists. (laughs) Right. All right. Let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. July 18th, better known as Bill Day, 1921, uh, American astronaut John Glenn. Ah, first man to orbit the Earth. Yeah, balls of steel on this guy. Well, I should say first American to orbit the Earth. I think Yuri Gagarin went out before he did, but... Yeah. Definitely balls of steel on that guy. Uh, To go in that little capsule and be like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Oh, man, I'm going to be going a 1,000 miles an hour. That's faster than anybody's ever gone. Right. Uh, He was a fighter pilot in World War II and Korea. Ah. So, uh, I mean, it wasn't like he was just like some guy like, hey, John! What are you doing? Yeah, wrong way Corrigan, right? It's not him. (laughs) Well, I guess his thought process was probably something like, you want me to go where? John, we want you to go into space. Right. I got that part. 
Am I going to have to shoot down Koreans? No. You just have to fly there for like 15 minutes and then land again. Yeah, I do that all the time. I flew 15 minutes to get here to this meeting. <laughs> like, yeah, but you're going to be in space. Yeah, I don't get your point. Nobody's going to shoot me down, right? No, John. You just have to sit still. We're going to do most of it with this UNIVAC computer that can do 10 million calculations in 10 minutes. Uh, all right. Well, is there an in-flight movie? Uh, what do we got for the 19th? July 19th, 1976, Doctor Strange, or currently the current Doctor Strange himself, Bandersnatch Cummerbums. Hinkle Brigger, Crinkle Fries. <laughs> Bangly Face, come on back. That's his name. Uh, Uncomfortable Cummerbund. That's right. Uh, Banderflip Flabbensnoob. He was born in London, England, and he's probably most famous right now for his role as Doctor Strange in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do you say his name, Benedict? Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, why did you say so? <laughs> That's what his mother said. <laughs> uh, she just, I just, she wanted to give him a trick name. Like, he'll never forget this name. Yeah, well, nobody can say it. Uh, before he was uh, Doctor Strange, he had a run on the BBC of Sherlock Holmes. He did. Yes, he was indeed Sherlock Holmes. Uh, one of the many incarnations of that character, as we've talked about on this show before. Yep. Yeah, I like him as Doctor Strange. Although, I do have to say this, in Far From Home, the most recent Spider-Man movie, yep. Humperdinck Curly Fries over here, his hairpiece is the worst. Oh my God. I couldn't stop. I, it was so distracting. I keep staring at it. Like I, like, I couldn't get over it. I missed half the movie because I kept on staring at this like Really, dude, I did cosplay for 10 years. I've seen some bad wigs. That was a bad wig. It couldn't look more unnatural if it had a chin strap. <laughs> yeah. July the 20th, 1957, the lovely and beautiful and blonde uh, Donna Dixon. I remember her from Bosom Buddies. Yeah, she was uh, Tom Hanks's uh, Goo Goo Eye love interest on Bosom Buddies. She is married to Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Yes, she is. Alien-seeing, <laughs> vodka-selling, conspiracy-obsessed, wackadoo Dan Aykroyd. Yep, I remember reading an article whenever they first got married that she said he is so funny that there are times where she has to like run out of the room because he keeps making jokes and keeps making jokes and she can't stop laughing. And she was like, it was like for her own health she had to like run out of the room. Oh, I bet. Yeah, going to show that that great sense of humor uh, that they always tell us is uh, is actually very important. Because I found this out by reading this uh, other person's autobiography. Prior to dating Dan Aykroyd, she was dating Paul Stanley from Kiss. And Paul Stanley actually lost out on Donna Dixon to Dan Aykroyd. Maybe she's just not into, like, hairy chests and stuff. Maybe, maybe she kept catching him, like, putting her shoes on. Like, you think I can wear these on stage? Those are not your size. Hey, Donna, I'm just going to put your high heels on over here. All right, uh, let's get on to the 21st. July 21st, 1957, American comedian and character actor John Lovitz. Probably best known for his time on Saturday Night Live, where he played such characters as the devil. Yes. And the guy who told constant lies. The pathological liar, yes. Pathological liar, yes. He's also been in a bunch of movies and a, and a bunch of TV shows. He was the voice of the main character on the, the only Simpsons spinoff. The um, Critic, right? The, the Critic, yep. yeah. And he was he came into news radio for the last season after Phil Hartman was murdered mm. and reprised the character that he played in the first season, who was insane, and came in and just took over Phil Hartman's position and they let him do it and it was it was as sad as that was on that show he was really funny uh as that character i really wish cell phones were around like they are now 
20 years ago or whenever it was because whenever Phil Hartman died, it wasn't long after where John Lovitz was in a bar sitting next to Andy Dick. And Andy Dick made some sort of off-color joke about Phil Hartman. And John Lovitz proceeded to beat the shit out of Andy Dick. I, I would have loved to see cell phone footage. He, like, took his head and just like, bang, 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 into the bar repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, I saw the interview where he talked about that. He, he said he snapped and he, like, really put a hurting on him. Yeah, I mean, and Andy Dick weighs about 80 pounds with a couple of rocks in his pocket, so it couldn't have been that much effort involved, but... Well, I mean, he and Phil Hartman were best friends. They were on SNL together. Yeah. I think they roomed together for a little while and everything, so, you know, that would be like if something happened to you or I, like, one of us would have the other response to the person who probably caused it to happen. So... Years ago, I was dating this girl, and she said the most prophetic thing to me, because John Lovitz is in this movie called Happiness, which is a very dark movie. It is not a happy movie. That's a Todd Soldon's Soldon's movie. Yeah, Yeah. I I saw that movie. I saw it once. That was enough. Amanda said to me, like I said, a very prophetic thing. I should have known better when she said this. She said, I will show you happiness. And you will be disturbed. And if that doesn't sum up our relationship in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on to July the 22nd, 1965. The heartbreak kid himself, wrestling legend and Hall of Famer, two-time Hall of Famer, Michael Hickenbottom, better known to the world as Shawn Michaels. Nice. Yep. He was like a super duper, like really like good looking and athletic sort of almost hair metal type wrestler when he first started. Yep. He was in the Rockers. That was his tag team. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, I mean, he's a little weird looking now, but he's he's older than I am, but he's in better shape than I am. And he looks way younger than me. He is or was, I should say, probably the best performer, solid, you know, performer right. in wrestling for that generation and top five for any generation. The guy could do it all. He worked great as a face, as a good guy. He worked great as a heel or a bad guy. You believed his matches. He sold them. Uh, You know, he sold his moves very well. And I was just telling this story the other day. My brother and I have a favorite, kind of like Shawn Michaels moment. He was in the ring, and he was wrestling the wrestler Diesel, who in real life is Kevin Nash, one of Shawn Michaels' best friends. So they were having a match in the ring, and Sean was the face, and Diesel was the heel. And uh, a young man with some uh, mental disabilities jumped over the barricade and was going to try to run into the ring to help Shawn Michaels. And Sean sees the kid jump over the ring and says, you can see him, he says to Diesel, throw me out. So Diesel throws him out of the ring. Sean does the flip over the ropes, lands on his feet, grabs the kid and said, no, 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 it's okay. Thank you, but I'm going to beat him up myself. And like grabbed the kid by the hand, walked him to the barricade. Security brought the kid back to his father. Everything was all taken care of. Sean got back in the ring and finished the match. It was that like awareness of what's going on around him. We were like, wow, what a cool guy. And, uh, and yeah, and that is very cool, considering earlier on in his career, Shawn Michaels was a notorious <laughs> well, a well-documented 
really big prick to work with, yeah. You know, I remember him as being, he was always one of those, like, I'm trying to describe, like, how my brain processes wrestlers. There's giants. Mm-hmm. there's not giants but wide guys and then there's like really muscular fit dudes who can jump around and flip around and yeah. and are really athletic and then there's little guys and then there's like weird out of shape dudes who get wailed on and he's falls into that like third category you know of like the super athletic guys yep who can really like flip around and uh, provide a lot of dynamism when they wrestle they always build up as weighing like 210 pounds or 225 pounds look yeah that guy Probably in, in his professional wrestling career, it probably weighs a little bit more now because, you know, right. doesn't have to go to the gym as often. That, that guy probably never weighed more than 175 pounds when he was an active no, wrestler. Yeah, that, <laughs> so. All right, moving on. Uh, July 23rd, 1971, bluegrass singer and fiddler Allison Krauss is born in Decatur, Illinois. Now, you may not know who Allison Krauss is. Maybe. And I don't. She is currently most well known for the, for the like the last 15 years or so of doing duets with Robert Plant. So she does bluegrass versions of Zeppelin songs and bluegrass stuff with him singing bluegrass songs that are all phenomenally good. Songs like Trouble with My Lover are great and uh-huh. their voices complement themselves beautifully. It makes for a really fun and interesting listen. Even if you're not a bluegrass fan, I recommend picking her records up. That must be very interesting seeing as Led Zeppelin's roots are so heavily in blues to have it morphed out to bluegrass like that. Yeah, I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah, they do some good stuff for like Battle of Evermore and, and other stuff from the early Zepp records that, that are great. You can find a ton of videos of them playing tiny desk concerts and stuff. Oh, wow. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays, July the 24th, 1951, TV's Wonder Woman, Linda Carter. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful woman, and she just kind of like showed up in one of the more recent Wonder Woman movies as like a cameo, and she still looks fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she's yeah. I think she's actually another version of Diana in that particular one in the uh, the end of yes. uh, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. Kind of got pigeonholed into that role, I guess. But yeah, I don't. I think we discussed this before. I haven't gone back and watched the Wonder Woman. TV series in a long time. I don't remember if it was any good. I just remember remember it was very popular. It was on for like four it was, seasons. It, it's okay. It has the same sort of structure as like the Dukes of Hazard or the Hulk. Oh, yeah. So that whatever happens this week, nobody remembers it by next week. <laughs> so oh, right, they might yeah. they might be encountering the same like issue, but it's like you don't remember that you dealt with like the Doomsday Weapon last week. Did you learn nothing? And and of course no, because it was written by they had to do like seventy five episodes a season and. It was written by 85 people. Yeah, TV series worked way different back then. Now they're just like... They're a little bit different now. Yeah, and now they're just... Uh, like, TV series now just like... 10-hour movie? Yeah, they're like 15-hour movies broken up into segments, right. She's also really funny at the end of Super Troopers playing the, the Vermont governor who's coming to the coming to talk to the state police she has a like a really short cameo but it's really funny yeah it's, it's well worth cutting oh, yeah. that down to you know what's very funny is linda carter like everybody else during the 70s had a variety show and there is one where linda carter and a bunch of dancers who are all in kiss makeup <laughs> are doing a cover of i was made for loving you which is not my favorite kiss song <laughs> it's not kiss's favorite kiss song either Right. But when Linda Carter does it, it is... The worst song 
ever. All right, young Jeff. I felt like because it was your birthday a couple of weeks ago, I felt like I had to give you a birthday present this year. Uh, remind me to not tell you my birthday again. <laughs> no, I gave I gave you this birthday present because I know you have a hatred for this particular artist. I don't, well, okay, so let me clarify. I don't hate anyone except for this particular artist. <laughs> uh, let me let me preface this by saying okay. my mother loves Neil Diamond. She's loved Neil Diamond forever. She thinks Neil Diamond is the bee's knees. You know who else's mother loves Neil Diamond? Everyone else's mother. Everyone we went to school with, yeah. Right. She looks at his hairy chest on like the Hot August Night record and she gets all weak in the knees. She looks at Paul Stanley's hairy chest and says, he's no Neil Diamond. Right, right exactly. No, Neil Diamond with an open shirt looks like a guy in half a gorilla costume. <laughs> anyway, my mom loved him. <laughs> Loves him to pieces. Listen to his records the same way I listen to Radiohead records. My kids, I'm sure, are going to have this conversation like 20 years in the future. with They're doing their podcast of Twibbly and they're complaining yeah. about my music. But she listened to so much Neil Diamond, I generated a like continuous lifelong dislike of Neil Diamond's music. Mm-hmm. The pinnacle of it was the last song of his that charted. And it's the song, just to think of saying it makes me irritated, Heartlight. All right, so let's play the clip of Heartlight. Turn on your heartlight. Let it shine wherever you go. Let it make a happy glow for all the world to see. Turn on your heart light in the middle of a young boy's dream. Don't wake me up too soon. Gonna take a ride across the Okay, this song is A, terrible, and B, as you listen to these lyrics, you begin to realize that, given the time frame, because this came out in the, you know, uh, the late part of the early 80s. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 82 or 83. Yeah, 82. 82, yeah. Columbia Records. This song's about the movie E.T., isn't it? It is. And it is. It is. It is. It is not quite the quest for fire version of telling the story of E.T. that Iron Maiden is well known for. But this, I guess the story is he saw the film and was so moved. He went home and wrote this stupid song. And in a time when aliens walked the earth. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And went to his friend also at the time hack by the 1980s, Burt Bacharach, and said, I had a great idea for song. Did you see the movie E.T.? And I'm sure Burt Bacharach was like, I was doing monstrous, huge piles of cocaine i don't know what you're talking about and he says but i've got this great song and he shows him the lyrics and he goes well it's no i'm believer but we'll record it right and then they brought in 427 studio musicians and recorded heartlight and he sings it so earnest uh, it's can kill a diabetic at only two listens yeah it will shut like, a pancreas off at five it's <laughs> it's so like for lack of a better word heartfelt and earnest and it's like Dude, you're singing about E.T. Consider in 1982. Do you remember when E.T. came out? Yeah, it was enormous. It was in the cinema for a year. Right. It played at the mall in North Dartmouth, Mass. for one year. 
Right. Steven Spielberg was a wicked prick about it, too, because he didn't release that movie for home video. Right. Forever. Like, whenever it finally was released for home video, it was like a big event, a big deal. Yeah. There was, I mean, E.T. E. was an absolute blockbuster to the point where Neil Diamond wrote a song about it. <laughs> well, what happened was he wrote the song. This was the last song of his that charted. It went way up the charts really fast because you know everyone was in the thing of E.T. fever or something. And MGM, I guess, was like, hey, <laughs> that's our intellectual property you're writing about. And they sued him. <laughs> yeah, they got, they went to the yeah, he settled for like I think it was he ended up paying out like twenty five thousand dollars, which in the big picture isn't really all that much. But still, for for writing a song about a movie, I bet you Glenn Danzig must have been in his pants around that time. Oh, I, I, I bet he was. This song, you can I'm not gonna say it killed Neil Diamond's career. He was uh he was Teflon enough, but it was the last song that charted. It wasn't like a Billy Squire moment, but it kind of was. Kind, I guess kind of sort of this in 82 he was like in that same camp of people as Christopher Cross and him and like Donald Fagan who had broken out of Steely Dan who are guys that just didn't have they didn't have the appearance that, or the audience the age appropriate audience for MTV right because so, Neil Diamond I mean that Sweet Caroline song came out in 1969 yes so he had already had a long career yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. much longer than hit makers usually last. Well, right. I mean, he also had a humongous, like, flop of a film. He remade The Jazz Singer. Oh, yeah. Which is, which is the, the bad movie night in that movie for us somewhere, Bill, because that movie's awful. But yeah, he, had, he was coming off of, like, a movie that flopped hard, even though it got a lot of press. And he ended up spending the rest of his time sort of writing songs with with Andrew for Barbara Streisand and, and keeping her career kind of floating around into the early 80s. And... He was a focal point in a very, very funny movie called Saving Silverman with Jack Black. All right, uh, before we wrap up the show proper, I do have my two for Tuesday uh, trivia question for you. Okay. Oh, All right. That's right. A pair of dice, a pair of six-sided dice, if you add up all their numbers together, and a roulette wheel, if you add up all their numbers together, uh, they both come up with a sum that are significant numbers. What are the total of dice, and what are the total of a roulette wheel? All right, hang on. I'm doing chism bop. <laughs> I can hear you using your calculator. Uh, it's 18, uh, 22 for the dice. Am I right with that one? No! <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know, man. Math isn't my thing. Uh, dice add up to, like the universe and everything, 42. Oh, okay. And the numbers on a roulette wheel add up to... 666. Oh. Coincidence? <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. All right, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in... 666. I mean, uh, <laughs> and we'll see you back here in seven days. All right. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibley or... T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe, if you haven't already, and tell your friends. Maybe they need to learn how to spell potato. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight. Goodnight, everybody. Oh, sorry. You got one line! You got one freaking line, Jeff!
I'm just distra- I'm distracted by Meg telling me dinner's ready. Um, good night, everybody. Oh, shit. Get <laughs> up again. Hold on, hold on one second. I gotta switch chairs. I'm I forgot to switch out. I'm in the noisy chair. Okay. Why do you still have the noisy chair? It's good for everything but recording the uh, podcast. Let's put the uh, let's put the X. Let's put the S. The in, uh, let's. I'll say, I'll say, <laughs> I, I got say it. I got it. Right? I got it. Yes. Let's put the X in sex by Kiss. Right, exactly. If I if I was dating a girl who was born in that year, I'd be... Wait a minute. No, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I'd be, um, in, prison. I'd be, I'd I'd be, be cut, in prison. I'd be cutting that joke right out of the show. Do you have a favorite episode of the Flintstones? Uh, probably anything with a kazoo in it. Mine was the one where Barney tried to get a threesome going with Wilma and Betty. <laughs> hey, Wilma, want to come over and hang out with me and Betty? I like whenever child services came over and took Bam Bam away. <laughs> And they found that Pebbles was malnourished and unloved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, right. All of that out of there. <laughs> but that'll that'll be good for the blooper reel. I don't have to be right about everything, but I hate being wrong. Okay. Because prior to that, <laughs> ouch, ouch. Prior to that, but prior to that, he was. Well, a, he's he's also. Prior to that, he was. I think a, right now he's on that show. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Oh. <coughs> <clears throat> Bronchitis. It's what's for lunch. <laughs> you know, soaking people out of money, selling colloquial silver, saying that it cures everything. Uh, colloidal silver. Colloidal. What did I say? Colloquial again? I love, I love yeah. that word. Let me, let me start that <laughs> Apparently, let, you're practicing it well. Yep, let me start that over. 1927. The famed baseball team, the Harlem Globetrotters. You said baseball. Who ever, oh, my gosh. I did, didn't I? Yep. All right. So we don't want to say that because that's not what they are. Famous hockey team. <laughs> I swear to God, somebody just drove by riding a chainsaw. That's what it sounded like. Uh, Ishiro Honda was the director of... Uh, excuse me. Oof, that just snuck right out of me. And still as gorgeous as she was whenever she did... Uh... Really, dude? It's, it sounded like he was in my driveway. I actually heard that motorcycle on my end of the call, too. All right. So, Bill... I am not editing that out. That's staying. You have to edit that out. That's not cool. Uh, All right.